previously on Chillingworth. Henry Levern was entering law enforcement's terra incognita. With all this in mind, he concocted scenarios in which Yenzer might get Floyd, Joe, and even Bobby to talk. Levern and State Attorney Phil O'Connell asked Simon to offer a $10,000 reward to anyone who found the Chillingworth's remains. Peggy looked at the drapes and she went to touch the material on the drapes and she was just inches away from the microphone. He would have killed us. He would have just buried us. Floyd, an accomplished assassin, was sitting in his truck crammed with scores of machine guns and hundreds of hand grenades. Most of all, Floyd knew that Brazil was a place where Henry Levern and the Florida Sheriff's Bureau could never get to him. Welcome back to Chillingworth. Jose Apple was in Rio de Janeiro. We couldn't extradite him from there. Jabiri, Jabiri, trem pagador partiu às 8h25. A train man? Not long after Floyd Holzapfel arrived in Brazil, masked men dynamited the railroad track outside the city of Jaipuri near Rio de Janeiro, derailing a train carrying a mining company's payroll. When the guards responsible for protecting the cash on board, worth around $2 million, heard the robbers ordering them to put down their weapons, they complied. Then, as they exited the train, the masked men gunned three of the guards down and turn their weapons on their terrified colleagues. When Floyd recounted the tale of the vicious crime, he pointed out that generally, in a scenario like this, you tell a guy to put down his gun, and then you let him do it if he's willing to. But this time, they just open fire without saying a word. And that train stops. They know how to hold up. <laughs> The heist netted a fortune, what was then the largest haul ever in Brazil, even though the men dropped a briefcase stuffed with cash as they bolted. Investigators found very little evidence at the scene except for the several items the robbers apparently discarded as they were waiting for the payroll train to arrive. The story of the Jaipuri payroll train robbery was all over the press in Brazil, the rest of South America, and everywhere in the world. A rumor was going around Brazil that the guys who carried out the crime had hidden their machine guns in violin cases. So the police were searching everybody they saw with a violin. They even hauled in one man with a saxophone. These guys have carried that machine gun, those two machine guns, in violin cases. And airport submission in Brazil, in Rio, and if I was going to jail, and they arrested one guy with a saxophone case, and took him to jail. 
Detectives found very little evidence at the scene of the crime, although they did notice two packs of American cigarettes, two bottles of whiskey, American whiskey, bourbon, and $150 in American traveler's checks that had been stolen from a tourist. So Brazilian authorities surmised that the people who murdered the three guards and made off with the money were from abroad, most likely the United States of America. Floyd Holzapple was living in the Copacabana neighborhood of Rio when the Japari payroll train was robbed. It was a pleasure for Floyd living in Brazil and he just wanted to live like a respectable citizen. He didn't have to look over his shoulder for the police. It was the happiest time he'd had in his life since before the war. Floyd knew that Brazil wouldn't deport him to the States on a murder charge because unlike the US government, the Brazilian government didn't execute people. That's why the US couldn't extradite someone facing a murder charge hiding out in Brazil. On the other hand, Brazilian authorities would deport his ass if he acted up. Floyd might have admired the achievements of the train robbers, how they skillfully crafted a plan to make off with the mining company's payroll, how they had disappeared after the heist. But Floyd had nothing to do with the crime. About six months before the Japari train robbery, Floyd had decided to go into self-imposed exile. Floyd had also learned that Henry Lovern planned to collar him for a minor charge, registering a car under a false name, and then seek the maximum sentence, which was five years. Floyd had decided he should bolt, but he didn't have enough cash to finance his escape. Then a man sauntered into the insured Capital Corporation's Orlando office and invested $20,000 in the bogus company. So, what do you have The next day a guy walks in the office. As soon as the guy walked out of the office, Floyd cashed the gullible man's check, graciously left half in the corporate account, and flew up to Washington, D.C. The next day, he got a passport in the afternoon, flew up to New York City, and around midnight, boarded a jet airplane for Rio. 10.30 that night, I'm on the way to Rio de Janeiro on a jet airplane. Floyd's odyssey from Orlando to Rio had been harrowing, and he knew that he had been lucky to make it all the way to Brazil in one piece. So at least for a time, he was very conscious of how precious freedom was. And at that point, Floyd didn't think he needed to pull off an elaborate job like the payroll train robbery to survive. He had come down to Brazil with a reasonable amount of American dollars, and up in Florida, money was still cascading into insured capital, the fraudulent investment vehicle that he had co-founded with Joe Peel. Floyd expected insured capital to finance his new life in Brazil. He'd earned it. They ain't but two damn good places in the world. Place you come from and place you want to go to. Floyd had become an immigrant. He'd left his native land the country that he'd fought for so heroically just 16 years earlier in North Africa and Sicily. But he was comfortable in his new home. The two men who were responsible for Floyd's departure, however, were very uneasy at this point. The first was Joe Peel. 
Jim Yenzer had brilliantly convinced Joe that Floyd would spill his guts about the Chillingworth murders once he was retried and sentenced for stealing weapons from freedom fighters back in Miami. It seemed logical to Joe, therefore, to hire Yenzer to kill Floyd. And just in case Yenzer couldn't comply with the terms of the deal, Joe had mounted a parallel campaign to rid himself of his best friend by scaring him into moving to Brazil. The other man who was responsible for Floyd's decision to head down to Brazil was, of course, Henry Lovern. It was Lovern's idea to set Floyd up in the arms deal, which resulted in Floyd's conviction and his 15-year sentence. Lovern hadn't expected Floyd to bolt the country, though. In a sense, Lovern's plan had backfired. One of the three men behind the Chillingworth murders was now thousands of miles away, in a safe haven that he might stay in for the rest of his natural life. Joe Peel and Bobby Lincoln were still around, but of course, because the Chillingworth bodies hadn't been found, under the doctrine of corpus delecti, two of the three men responsible would have to testify that they had committed the horrible crime. The prospects for that happening at that point looked really bleak. While he began to come up with a plan to somehow get Floyd to come back to the States, as unlikely as that seemed, Lovern focused on Joe Peel. Lovern had heard that Ralph Clark, who was now a Brevard County Sheriff's deputy, was a gifted detective. He needed someone with Ralph's skills and his progressive law enforcement mentality for help in the case. So he approached Ralph and asked him if he would come on board. Now, Henry Lovern was in charge of the case. He was good at it. He was a good investigator. He had his ducks in a row. And so he started, started telling me that we need, then we, we, we would set up and get Peel and Yenzer together. And uh, let Yenzer convince Peel that Lucky Hosaffel, or Floyd, they call him Lucky, was a threat to him on the big C case, they call it, the Chillingsworth case. We get together and we start bumping heads and talking about it and, and putting our hypothesis together. And, and uh, it comes up, comes up pretty good. I didn't really uh, get in on the perfect little plan. <laughs> uh, usually that would be late at night and they'd be sitting around the, the table drinking coffee or whatever. And of course I had to get up and teach. So I would go on to bed and they would plot and plan half the night. And if they weren't there at the house talking about it, they were out sneaking around in trucks of cars and whatever. Floyd had committed himself to abiding by the law in his new home, Rio de Janeiro. Floyd, at least at this point, recognized how lucky he was to have made it to Brazil and had no intention of putting his precious freedom at risk by committing any crime. Brazil mesmerized Floyd. He had arrived during a time of unbridled optimism during Juscelino Kubitschek's term as president. Kubitschek was a progressive who envisioned a Brazil that would finally achieve the potential its vast resources and huge dynamic population made possible. Intoxicated by everything the country offered, Floyd took in whatever he could in Brazil. He planned to stay there, was curious about its history and its politics. He explored legitimate business opportunities. 
In his first weeks in Brazil, Floyd met an American expat named Franco, a businessman who'd lived in Brazil for quite some time. Franco and Floyd were kindred spirits. Franco was a generous, well-heeled, bon vivant who was grateful for the company of Floyd, a witty, intelligent countryman, unaware of the lives his companion had destroyed. Floyd had committed himself to abiding by the law in his new home. That didn't mean he'd become a square, though, by any stretch of the imagination. Neither Floyd nor his new friend, Franco, liked to stay in. They pursued late-night adventure whenever they could. Both men developed contempt for the stultifying concept of a quiet night at home. This is the artist's ball, Bohemia on a bender of fun and frolic. With Franco as his guide, Floyd caroused and philandered his way through Copacabana, Ipanema, and other neighborhoods in Rio. A little Portuguese girl for the last couple of months wakes me up every morning with a blowjob and then runs to the kitchen and brings me some coffee. An entirely different outlook on sex than you do. Women down there. And you can fuck any broad in Brazil just stand here. You can go to one place and there's a businessman's uh, apartment in the afternoon and uh, a couple of us go up there and order four hundred different girls, one maybe one Japanese, one Hungarian, one German, and one Portuguese girl, all at the same time in the same big fucking room. One of the women Floyd met in the wee hours was a Portuguese immigrant named Nazaré dos Santos. Nazaré had separated from her husband, an airline pilot, after she'd caught him in bed with her housekeeper. Floyd and Nazaré spent a lot of time together until Peggy arrived in Rio with their young son. Peggy became aware of Floyd's tryst with Nazaré. Peggy somehow forgave Floyd for his betrayal, and their marriage miraculously survived. Peggy actually liked Rio, but she didn't embrace it the way Floyd had. She didn't know the language, of course, had no friends, but spent a lot of her time in a small apartment with her son, watching Brazilian television. Peggy had misgivings about staying in Rio forever. She knew practically nothing about Floyd's crimes. He had always told her, that he had worked as a private investigator for Joe. She believed that Insured Capital was an above-board investment company. So she didn't know that Floyd saw Brazil as their new home because it wasn't safe for him to return to the States. Floyd dedicated himself to finding a business that would allow him and his family to stay in Brazil indefinitely, prosperous and happy. With Franco's help, Floyd managed to get residency in Brazil, which gave him more opportunities to enter into a deal. He knew learning the language would also open up things for him. Floyd couldn't afford a Portuguese tutor, but he started to pick up the language on his own. I have Eu team. You have T-W-U? We'll say team. We have is nos teamos. Nos, 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 N-O-S. Nos teamos. a lot of nasal sound Yeah, they don't talk with their nose. It's not clear whether Floyd's limited proficiency with Portuguese came in handy in his business negotiations. In Portuguese, it's mais ou menos. I guess like the word have. What? Team. 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 Spell how it sounds. T-E-E-M. Team. 
Come on by, Jose. Come on by. How are you? Actually, it should be come on by, Jose. How are you? But they just say come on by. Come on by. Come on by, Jose. However it happened, Floyd found himself with a promising offer to buy a hotel. I set up a deal to buy a $120,000 hotel with 77,000 square meters of land. Now let me sign a swing before get the whole fucking thing financed and I didn't have the $3,000 to pay for the tax stamps. The bankers backed out of the deal. He never sent me the fucking money for the $3,000 to buy the tax stamps. At that point, Floyd had been in Rio for a while. He'd spent most of the money he'd taken out of Insured Capital's account the previous December, just before he fled the U.S., mostly talking to his friend Jim Wilbur, the bondsman who stood to lose $15,000 if Floyd's bond was forfeited. A Florida appellate court had ordered a new trial in Floyd's weapons theft case. Floyd didn't have any plans to return to Florida to appear in court for the second trial course. He didn't plan to return to Florida ever. Normally, that would mean his bail bondsman would have to forfeit the appeal bond to the state. Floyd had arranged with Joe to compensate Wilbur, though. Joe had agreed to pay Wilbur off with a portion of the insured capital proceeds that Floyd was entitled to. Joe broke his promise, though, which meant Wilbur stood to lose some serious coins. As much as he truly liked Floyd, Wilbur couldn't just say, no problem, Floyd, I'll eat the 15 grand. I understand that you had to skip bond, flee the country, and ruin me financially in the process. Wilbur wasn't going to just accept the loss of 150,000 in today's money. So Wilbur figured out a way to make up his loss on the bond, a way to make up for the loss about seven times over for that matter. Floyd had once strongly suggested to Wilbur that he had killed Judge and Mrs. Chillingworth. Wilbur may have entertained the idea before, but now that he was faced with the prospect of forfeiting Floyd's bond, he decided to go after the $100,000 in reward money offered in the Chillingworth case. That's about a million clams today. So Wilbur approached Henry Lovern and told him what he knew. Lovern recognized how valuable Wilbur could be to the case. He was very close to Floyd. Lovern enlisted Wilbur as his second informant. Shrewdly, Lovern didn't tell Wilbur that Yenzer was already working with him. And of course, he didn't tell Yenzer he had signed Wilbur up. So Yenzer and Wilbur would be essentially competing for the $100,000, although both thought that they were the only one who had agreed to turn in their friend in exchange for some scratch. Yenzer at this point was earning a steady income from the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. Henry Lovern, Ralph Clark, and Ross Anderson arranged for Yenzer to meet several times with Joe to talk about the plot to kill Floyd. On most of those occasions, the detectives managed to record the conversations. Once Ralph Clark and Lovern enlisted Clark's wife Charlotte to help out with the operation. Ralph had called me it happened to be after I had gotten home from work, and he asked me to meet him and go down to dinner with him in Melbourne. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? What, what's this about? And he told me it had to do with the Dillingworth case. I was a little concerned, a little apprehensive, 
But when we got in the restaurant, we ordered, Ralph pointed out Joe Peel. And he says, I have to put these two men together. And uh, he said, so just act natural and normal and don't worry about anything. And when uh, Ralph introduced me to Joe Peel, I was, I thought, oh no, this man can't be a murderer, can't be behind any of this. He had a pleasant personality, very outgoing, very friendly, very charming. And I said, are you sure? And then after meeting him, I said, well, he could be kind of a con artist too. <laughs> For Joe, it wasn't enough that Floyd had gone into exile. Even though Floyd was living on another continent way below the equator and couldn't come back to the States without incurring a high risk of capture, Joe still wanted his friend dead. So Joe revised his contract with Yenzer. Now Joe wanted Yenzer to snuff out Floyd's life on foreign soil. Joe told Yenzer he wanted him to fly down to Rio to fulfill the principal term of their contract. Yenzer told Joe he'd do it, for a premium, of course. Joe coughed up the additional sum to cover the trip to Brazil and the bonus, or hazard pay, for killing their mutual friend under the Brazilian sun. Yenzer didn't get to keep the installment payments that Joe Peel was giving him in advance for agreeing to kill Floyd. Lover made him turn over that money to the Sheriff's Bureau. At least once, Yenzer understated the amount Joe paid him and pocketed part of the cash. By the middle of 1960, Floyd had become very comfortable with his life in Rio, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. A diverse, vibrant place surrounded on one side by mountains covered with lush forests, and on the other, the Atlantic Ocean. Floyd had made many friends in the expat community, and also among the Brazilians he met. Friends who didn't expect at all that he was a fugitive who killed three people in the last four years. Floyd marveled at Brazil's multicultural society and how in many ways it was more advanced than his homeland, while in others it seemed backwards to him. Now that's one thing down there, there is no segregation whatsoever. And it's illegal in a country that the Constitution persecute anybody for their religion, race, color. You can marry a girl in Brazil, have 20 children. She is 23, 24, 25, maybe a little age. Goodbye. Walk out the front door. She don't get no property settlement. She don't get no fucking alimony. She don't get shit. You go to the court, you ask for a legal separation. Fine. No line. Huh? Oh, no. She don't get shit. Huh. What? 99% of the girls I've met since I've been in fact, I can't think of one of them. Floyd became enamored with Brazil. He found it exhilarating to live there. He tried to spread the word about Brazil too. Floyd encouraged Bobby to join him in Rio instead of going to prison. But Bobby decided to stay in the USA and face the music. A few months later, Bobby said goodbye to his wife and children and started serving his sentence in a federal penitentiary in Tallahassee, Florida. Floyd's relentless search for a promising investment in Brazil led him to another real estate project that looked good. All he needed was his share of the insured capital bonanza, or a fraction thereof. When Floyd asked Joe again for his cut from insured capital, Joe said he'd go down to Brazil and check out the property personally. 
Floyd actually believed that Joe was going to come down to Brazil. He waited at the airport for Joe, but Joe wasn't on the plane he said he'd be on. Joe had simply lied to Floyd to calm him down for a week or two as he waited. Joe told Floyd he'd take a flight a week or two later. And again, Floyd showed up at the airport for Joe's flight, and Floyd stood there like a sap, waiting for Joe to get off the plane. But he never did. Persuaded in part by telephone calls from Wilbur about the cash showering Joe and insured capital, Floyd finally registered that the greedy little bastard was holding out on him. So Floyd asked the person he trusted most in the world, his wife Peggy, to go up to Orlando, pour over insured capital's books, and get an accounting. Peggy wasn't an accountant, but she was bright and had the composure to make it happen. Peggy considered leaving their son with Floyd, but the couple agreed it wouldn't be prudent in light of their very limited resources. Peggy headed back to Florida to carry out her mission for Floyd. When Peggy arrived at Insured Capital's world headquarters in Orlando, she settled in and immediately began to scrutinize the dodgy company's books. She was determined to figure out to what degree Joe had siphoned cash from Floyd. Henry Lovern, Ralph Clark, and Lovern's colleagues at the Florida Sheriff's Bureau had Peggy Holzapple under surveillance while she was in Orlando. At this point, Lovern had become very uptight about Floyd's relocation to Brazil and the likelihood he'd return to North America. Jim Wilbur kept Lovern abreast of Floyd's status in Brazil. Wilbur talked with Floyd several times while he was down in Rio. Lovern had recorded some of the calls. The calls revealed that Floyd was essentially down and out in Brazil. Lovern also knew, through Yenzer, that Floyd had become very disenchanted with Joe because his friend and partner would not do right by him when it came to the insured capital money. Lovern realized that Floyd's frustration with Joe served his needs. He knew he could exploit Floyd's escalating resentment, which he hoped to transform into a violent, uncontrollable rage. Levern had a gift, which was his natural inclination to see everyone as a person rather than a type. He somehow could relate to almost anyone, no matter what they'd done. This allowed him, in turn, to figure out ways to manipulate them, all in the service of justice. Levern had Wilbur exaggerate Joe's sleaziness, which was not easy to do. In his calls to Floyd and Rio, Wilbur reinforced Floyd's suspicions about the allocation of insured capital's revenue. Aware that Floyd was struggling to survive in Brazil, Lovern's hope was that he might reach a point where he'd return to Florida to confront Joe about the money he owed him. Joe's refusal to part with the money he owed Floyd seemed counterintuitive. He had done everything in his power to get Floyd to move to Brazil. Now, Joe's greed was leading Floyd to come back. Lovern and Ralph Clark, along with Lovern's other colleagues, watched Peggy Holtzapple closely while she was in Orlando. They photographed her meeting with Joe on at least one occasion. The detectives were seeking information that might reveal more about Floyd's grand scheme. When Ross Anderson of the Sheriff's Bureau told his wife about the case late one night and described how Lovern planned to lure Floyd back from Brazil, she came up with an idea. She casually suggested that Lovern should get Wilbur to tell Floyd that Peggy and Joe were shacking up. 
When Anderson repeated what his wife had said to Lovern, Lovern immediately told Wilbur to try to convince Floyd that Peggy and Joe were having an affair. You see, I mean, they, they, they've, they've bullshitted me so fucking much, and the one person I've always trusted. I mean, you know one reason I didn't leave Wilbur? Why? When he told me that, she was, he, that, that Peggy was sleeping with Joe because Peggy hates Joe so much, she always hated him. The man that lies, he knows what the possibilities are. The truth was that Joe made Peggy's skin crawl. She thought he was a smarmy sleaze bag. But it didn't matter. Wilbur's report sounded convincing to Floyd. He thought it might be true. His best friend might be sleeping with his wife in some two, maybe three-star hotel in Orlando. Holy shit. When Peggy's letter detailing Insured Capital's cash flow arrived, Floyd finally had confirmation that his suspicions about the money he was owed were true. Insured Capital owed him $80,000, about a million dollars today. Floyd told Wilbur he'd be coming back to the States to sit Joe down as soon as he could. Wilbur, of course, immediately told Levern that Floyd was heading home. Henry Levern had given all he had to the Chillingworth case. He had spent weeks at a time away from his family. When he learned that Floyd had taken a powder had relocated to Brazil, Lovern had been crushed. But he was driven, and he remained dedicated to the case. Now he'd possibly have another shot at Floyd. Floyd was broke. He had no way to even make it to the States. Then Nazare, his mistress, borrowed money to finance the trip, even though she had at first pleaded with him to stay in Rio. She didn't understand why Floyd felt compelled to return to Florida. She had offered to support him until he could find a way to support himself in Brazil. Until he could capitalize on one of his legitimate entrepreneurial projects. Floyd told her no. Floyd had become enamored with Brazil. Of all the places he'd been in his life, Rio was the place he loved the most. Nazare notwithstanding, he thought he could have a wonderful life there with Peggy and their son. He felt at peace there for the first time. Floyd had received the greatest gift a man could ever receive, a chance to redeem himself for the horrible things he'd done. Joe was still there though, Joe Peel, the man who Floyd had hoped would allow him to transform his life the one person who he had hoped would allow him to raise himself up, to become the man he was destined to be, to realize the potential his intellect, his drive, his talents given him. Joe Peel, that's who he'd always been to Floyd. Now Joe had taken his wife and his fortune. Floyd was willing to put his freedom, his new life, his new world at risk to face Joe and to get everything that Joe had promised him.
Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein. <laughs>